I'm reminded of the type of person I was when I decided to follow Jesus. For me, I had one of those um, conversion experiences where I was 12 years old at a church camp, at a Pentecostal four-square church camp, and went down to the altar call, um, not a believer in Jesus, not a follower of Jesus anyway, and then returned back to my seat full-on a Christian. Now, some people don't have that situation where they knew the day that they became a Christian. This was a proclamation of faith. For some of you, it may be a lot more fluid. You may have grown up listening and hearing, and it was a very major practice of putting things on, taking things off, becoming Christ-like in that way. But for me, it was very much a one-day, one-shot moment. But regardless of what your story was, Regardless of how you came to know Christ, there was a before and an after. And when met with Jesus and the teachings found in the Bible, we all are faced with a newness of belief and then a newness of decision of how the behaviors will align with those new beliefs. How will we align our behaviors with these new beliefs? They may be inappropriate behaviors that we have been having before, and now there are new beliefs. And for me, when I was 12, it was starkly different because I came from a different culture, and I came from a culture where it was okay to talk crap about people I didn't like. It was okay to decide these guys were losers. It was okay even back in the 90s to wear my big hair and occasionally get in a brouhaha fist fight with a girl from another school, maybe from Milliken or Johnstown or one of those other gangster schools. So that was my behavior, and that was the way I had stood up for myself, and that is what I had learned. But now, at 12 years old, going to church camp with all these other kids, I'm noticing they don't treat each other bad. I noticed right away at church camp that there weren't cool kids, and it freaked me out. I remember sitting at the table, and you didn't really think about where you sat. You just got your tray and sat. Now, that was weird. There were all different kinds of people from different social classes, from different looks, from different homeschool kids. This is weird. All these kinds of people meshing together, not based on the social norms that I was used to. And that was one of the first times, obviously, at that church camp where my eyes were open and the Holy Spirit was doing work that said to me, My new beliefs and the beliefs and the ways of Jesus as found in the Bible is very different than what I'm used to and the way I want to behave. So we're going to look at that today. We're going to be studying in the section in the book of Acts, Acts 19, where Paul, a follower of Jesus, is going to challenge the status quo of the culture there in Ephesus. He's going to put a new spin on old beliefs, and we're going to see how the people react. We are, we could put it on the screen. Acts 19, 23 through 41, and I'm reading in the NIV. I would have to wear my glasses to see that, but anyway, I got it here. So if I'm looking down, you can follow along up there, or if you have a Bible or a Bible on your phone. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and you hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and particularly the whole province of Asia. 
He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's danger. Not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristotarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Verse 35. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance upon anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. All right, so before I begin, would you pray with me, please? Father God, I want to thank you for this opportunity. I want to thank you for every person that is here. Holy Spirit, would you um, be glorified? Would you speak through this living word, and would you make it applicable for each of us today? Amen. All right, so Acts 19.23 starts with, About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. When you heard, heard me say that, a great disturbance, did you think of the force? It kind of sounded like I was going there when I read it out loud. There was a great disturbance in the way. And at this time, three times uh, the Christian movement has been called the way. Essentially what that means is Paul is traveling around with some other people, and he is doing a good job. We use that Christian word evangelizing. It just may, basically means he's traveling around sharing the message of Jesus, and people are responding. So people really are wanting to learn more about Jesus and who he is, and things are getting going. Things are changing. And the work is going really well, and Paul thinks, well, now I'm going to leave Ephesus. Time to go. Let's move on. He's always, Paul's always moving on. Time to go evangelize somewhere else. But now there's a great commotion. So now we can tell that Paul and the other people are going to have to stop and wait and see what's going to happen. What is going to happen? Because this one guy, Demetrius, is on to Paul, and he is not feeling super stoked about him. Verse 24, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business 
for the craftsmen there. So essentially, Demetrius is not just one guy who makes these silver shrines. He's a boss of a lot of people that are making income on making these shrines. So verse 25, he called them together along with the workers in related trades. So anybody that has anything to do with the shrines, anything that has to do with the selling of these products, think of an industry, the buying and selling of goods. Obviously, today we think of marketing and social media and all of these things. But who knows? There might have been people that went to travel about where you could get things on the shrines, people that would travel the roads, people that would sell. Obviously, there might be concessions there, all these things that are all going to be impacted. So he called all these people together and he said, you know, my friends. And right off the bat, he's saying, you've seen this happen. So, you know, firsthand, it's not like he's sharing something new. And secondly, he says, my friends basically saying right off the bat, you are on my side. You know, my friends, that we all receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large number of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. Paul has said that gods made by human hands are not gods at all. It's hard for us to understand what this would have looked like. You might imagine when you go to the Grand Canyon, little trinkets, maybe a magnet, maybe a little globe ball, something that you take home. But for these people, this was a bigger deal than that. This monument was huge, 425 feet long, this big, big temple, um, 127 columns that were 60 feet high each. So we're talking like a big mega structure. And not only that, but they have these little, these little silver shrines that were made to Artemis. Do you know what it looked like? It looked like a crude head with legs and a bunch of grapes that were breasts. Seriously, like dozens of breasts hanging off of this thing. Because Artemis was known for being kind of like their mother nature. She was the queen of the hunt. She equaled fertility, also virginity, both somehow. Mother nature somehow. Um, wilderness somehow. Nature somehow. Childbirth somehow. All these things wrapped in one kind of like Wonder Woman. And in fact, in fact, the Roman name for her is thought to be Diana. And her image is a bow. A little interesting now as I'm studying for this and thinking of Wonder Woman. But Wonder Woman, Mother Nature, she's all these things put together and she's a big deal. And part of the reason she's a big deal is because Ephesus was where a meteorite fell. And out of this... Ooh, out of this weird, don't mess with that, out of this weird black meteorite, they sculpted a crude figure of a goddess, and there is where they put her shrine. And so there's about 13 other cities that also worship her. The Spartas worship her, the Greeks worship her, but this is the center. So you know how there are certain holy areas like Mecca? There's certain holy areas that people consider the place to go. Well, that's where you would go. If you were going to worship Artemis, you would travel there to Ephesus and buy one of these shrines so that you had it to bless your home. And not only that, 
They were selling tons of these to go set up other churches. It's as if you went there to get the the proper items. It was like the big religious goods store, right? Where you went to get your religious goods to set up other religious goods stores to worship. So now, this is what's happening for Demetrius and these men, is that they had spent their whole lives, these were master craftsmen. They know how to create these items, and they're making good money creating these items. Consider the implications. What if, thinks Demetrius, what if Paul discredits us? And what if more people start following the way and Jesus? And what if people stop coming and buying these things? And what if the shrine turns to rubble? And what if people don't ever come? What are we going to do? How are we going to make a living? And now people are freaked out. The same zealousness that Paul and the people of the way have to spread the message of Jesus is the same zealousness that Demetrius is feeling when it comes to protecting his livelihood. He is upset. And it doesn't take him much to work up the people. Let's look at verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious. And they began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized these two guys, Paul's Macedonian friends, and rushed them into the theater. You see, it doesn't take long to get people upset. The imagination can get heightened. We can connect the dots, just like Demetrius was doing. And soon they're all in this huge outdoor stadium. It's one of those stadiums, if you ever see the pictures, maybe 25,000 people can fit there. That's where they have plays, religious discussions. That's where they philosophize. And now they're starting a riot, and they're angry. Have any of you ever been involved in a riot, like a full-on riot? A couple of you? I've tried. I really have tried. In eighth grade, I was upset that they were firing one of our teachers. Well, they weren't going to renew her contract, so I hosted a sit-in in the cafeteria. We went on the phone at the school and ordered about 20 pizzas, and we just sat there and waited. And no one paid for the pizzas, but we ate them. And the police came and begged us to go back to class. And it was in the newspaper, but no riot, nothing exciting. And then again, some of my friends came down here to 16th Street Mall during, um, what was it, the Avalanche won a game. And the cops were there with pepper spray, and it was considered a riot, but it wasn't really bad. My father-in-law, though, who is here, Bob Till, he's been near a couple riots. He used to live in Greece, and uh, he's been in the wrong place at the wrong time where after a sports game, and I guess they call them matches, sports match. I don't know. I'm not sporty. After those kind of things, you would see and feel the vibe of tons of people getting upset at the outcome of a game. And you can just feel it in the air. And people are so upset that they're pulling up the seats and unscrewing the bolts of their seats to throw them. Violence. It's easy to think, maybe for you and I, that those kind of situations, those riotous, crazy non-rational situations could happen in Greece. Oh, it could happen there. Those people are so crazy. They're heightened. They're extreme, right? But it doesn't happen here. Or if it does happen in the States, it would only happen in certain neighborhoods, right? It must be a cultural thing. Well, we'll get back to that, but keep that in the back of your mind, okay? Now, verse 30. 
Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials, his friends, sent him a message and told him not to go. A couple reasons I think he wanted to go. Number one, Paul loves people. Here's Demetrius working a real living, making a living for his family, and maybe Paul feels bad. Demetrius and all these guys have experienced a financial blow. Maybe Paul wants to go and explain and say sorry. But even more, I think Paul wanted to go to evangelize. Hey, here's all these non-believers in one place. What better place for me to go and have an awesome audience, right? No, it's not going to be safe. These are not rational people that are ready to listen in a rational way. It's kind of like when people tell you, Don't evangelize to your drunk friends. Well, you can, and we all probably have, but it just goes in circles. That is not the time to try to have a spiritual conversation when someone is not in the right mood to even comprehend. It's better when people are of a sober mind and sober judgment, Uh, literally. So Paul doesn't get to go, but verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Someone was... Some were shouting one thing, some another. And do you know it says some of the people did not even know why they were there? I think that's probably true. Something gets happening. Telephone system. Come on, let's go check it out. How many of you have seen like when they say fight, 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 everyone just starts coming like in high school. You don't know if there's a fight or not, but that seems interesting. Or how you drive 10 miles an hour when there's cops on the side of the road. And you're like, why is everyone driving slow? But when it's your turn, you drive really slow. I just got to see. Just got to see. We're curious. When people are upset, we're curious. It's It's electrifying almost. It gets us going. It gets our adrenaline going. So now there's some Jews that are in the crowd. And they push forward this guy, Alexander. He's a Jewish person, so they're thinking, oh, yeah, we're Jews. People are going to listen to us, right? But no, now when a Jewish guy gets up there, all the Ephesian people who aren't Jews, now they have a tactic. And it's the same tactic we still use. Have you heard, hell no, we won't go, or we will overcome. But in this case, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They shout it for two hours. And it's not because they're that convinced. It's partially because they're like, you know what? We're not going to let this guy talk. And we don't want him to talk, so we're going to shout our stance over him for two hours. But you know what? Two hours is a long time. They probably got the sore throats. And it dies down. And when it dies down, what's going to happen now? A new person is going to come, a city clerk. And this city clerk did have authority. He was probably wealthy. He was someone that was probably chosen. He had a position of authority. He was a distinguished person, a person of honor, and he is calm. And that's different. And maybe now the people are exhausted a little bit physically after two hours of shouting. And so he actually gets to speak. And in verse 35, we hear the city clerk quieted the crowd. Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all of the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple and the great Artemis in her image, which fell from heaven? So he's saying, don't sweat it, dudes. He goes on to say, do not sweat it. Why are you taking matters into your own hands? This is embarrassing. 
If the Romans hear that we rioted, we could get in trouble. And we are law-abiding citizens. And now we're going to be in trouble because those guys are starting something? What I like about him also is he says to them, verse 37, You have brought these men here, although they did not rob temples or blaspheme our goddess. He doesn't say that Paul is a bad guy, but he doesn't say that Paul is a good guy. He's neutral. He basically says, be calm. Think about it. If you want to do something, you can do something legal in the correct way. He reasoned. He doesn't want to make Rome upset. He wants to speak and listen. And this reminds me of, I don't know how many of you have been here a long time, but Mike Sayers gave this sermon once, and I consider this one of Mike's greatest hits. There was a fight, flight, or sacrifice sermon. And essentially, it's the idea that the world tells us we can fight, just like all these people that are rioting, or we can flight, we can run away and hide, just like Paul is hiding out right now, or we can sacrifice. There's a third way. And oftentimes we don't see the sacrifice part because we're so busy between the fight or the flight. And this happens in our relationships too. And I think here, this clerk exemplifies a sacrifice point of view, which is don't have a point of view. You don't have to have a point of view right now. You can see all of the information in front of you and calmly examine it. Now, Fran Blomberg, who is here today, knows me, and she knows I'm an intense personality. And Fran learned with me that anytime during scum staff meetings, when something was brought up, I would get really intense. And she's like, I just give you 10 minutes to calm down. And then we watch you, and then my brain would think, that's just how I work. Sorry, that's just how I work. I get really emotional or really blah. And then I can be like, oh, wait, no, I agree. I agree. What? Just really hyper. But the clerk is telling us, and showing us, just consider all of these points of view, right? The author of Acts is showing us that there are reasonable people out there. The clerk does not blame or judge anybody, but he doesn't say that he agrees. He considers Paul an orator at this point. He doesn't dismiss the way, but he considers him an orator, which is back in the day, people would all philosophize. Everybody had a point of view. What's so crazy about this point of view? He's able to be respectful even though he doesn't agree. Everywhere we turn, we are going to find similar situations. We're going to find situations that occur in Acts 19. Every day, people are gathering, groups of people are gathering to discuss their hate and their fear. People are gathering right now in groups all around the world based on a similarity of what they hate and what they fear and what they want to oppress. They may be doing it face-to-face. They may be doing it in online forums. They may be doing it in chat rooms. They may be even doing it in churches. People are constantly moved and grouped by their fears and their hatreds. This is nothing new. They're going to look out for their own good. When their, bank, when their bank accounts are challenged, when their bank accounts are hit, they're going to panic. When a person is challenged because of a concern of another's well-being, or a concern of the habitats or care of the earth, or a concern of the oppressed, 
when those things are challenged and someone wants to make money off of what they sell or who they sell, people are going to get upset and people are going to go for the throat. It's no different today. Christianity does shake the status quo on how people make and spend money. Would you, would you say that's true? Consider Paul and the members of the way. They essentially were the way, which is Jesus's way, which should be our way today. No different, right? They stuck their necks out for truth, and they challenged the status quo, and they faced social backlash. We, too, will face social criticism. We will be dismissed. We may be victimized. We may be oppressed. We'll definitely be made fun of. That's at the very least. Um, when our behaviors and our belief challenge the status quo. A decade ago, it would have been very rare, maybe even two decades ago, to say, I have seen a riot or I have been involved in a riot. But the recent times, in 2017, the U.S. saw eight recorded riots. And that's just recorded. 2016, nine. And these have different names. Sometimes it's called a riot. Sometimes it's called an attack. Sometimes it can be during a summit or civil unrest or an occupation or a rally gone wrong or a violent protest. There are lists and lists and lists of these all over the United States that are occurring, and it's becoming very common. And you will see when you look and when you research this that something starts as a summit and ends at a riot or starts as a parade or starts as a peaceful demonstration. And something is happening that is making it go from A to B where flight and fight and sacrifice are not working out and there is violence. And it happens very easily. And I wonder for each of us individually, if someone were to scratch the surface of you, are you an angry person that right away would go to violence? Are you an anxious per person that right away would go to fear? Are you a peaceful person that will calmly be able to rationalize or remove yourself from the situation? Are you someone who runs to the fire or tries to put the fire out? And I also wonder what happens when the Holy Spirit is the one causing the chains in people's thoughts. Because you know what? The Holy Spirit does react this way. There's another story that happened in Acts 2. The word here used in um, Acts 19.29, when all of the people were rushing to the theater, is homothematon. And it's a Greek word that means in one accord. It means having the same mind. All the people rushed like a panic, like a riot happening in one accord, with one mind, with one goal. And we see that same word, that same Greek word happen, but in God's way in Acts 2. I'll read it here. It's also up there if you want to read along. Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place all in one accord for the same reason. They, being a group of believers that had been led by Peter, maybe 120 people, and verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
they all, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them, again, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So we see the opposite of a riot occurs when the Holy Spirit is authoring the in one accord. How cool would that be to be in one accord with every single person here? What would that be like? Can we manufacture that? Can we create that? Have you ever experienced that? I'd like to think that there's been moments in my life where, and it's happened here at Scum too, where, we're, where worship is happening. And the Holy Spirit seems to make us all brothers and sisters in one accord. And you enter into the Holy Spirit, and it's surreal. Some of those moments happen. And peace and unity and clarity occur when the Holy Spirit authors the one accord. It is so easy to judge those who are not yet believing and behaving the way we do. Even other members of our Christian family. When they don't believe the nuances we believe, when they don't behave the way we feel they should behave, when they don't vote the way we feel they should vote, it's easy to judge them. How can they be reading the same Bible? How can they be interpreting this the same way? It's very easy. How do we talk about one another? How do we talk to one another? Are we afraid? Are we hiding out? And if we're afraid of other Christians, how much more are we afraid of the world? Isn't that scary? The world. We're gonna, they're contagious. They're going to rub off on us. We better just hide. We better just hide. And how are we going to show the love of Christ to people we hide from? Whether it be people who have not yet believed or people who are believing differently. Paul knew and had a grip on his own salvation and his own sinfulness. The only way we get past this judging part is by recognizing we're all in the same boat. Like I said, at age 12, I was believing new things and therefore God was helping me align my behaviors. No matter where you are in the Christian walk, he's still challenging your beliefs and aligning your behaviors. Even if you've been walking with him several decades, he's not done. Paul wrote this in Romans 3, Romans 3, verse 20, and it's very deep philosophically, and it's a lot to unpack, but the notion of this is that we're all sinful, so don't think you're better than someone, but I am going to read it. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of our sin. So the righteousness comes from Jesus. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I love that. All have sinned. I love it and I hate it. All have sinned, right? And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So what beliefs these days 
are being challenged and growing in you as you study and read the Bible and walk alongside other brothers and sisters? What beliefs are being brought to your attention and maybe changing? Faith is fluid. And what behaviors are being challenged in your own life? And as you continue to work out your faith with fear and trembling, my prayer is that God would align our behaviors with his truth and that he would remind us that the Holy Spirit is going to put us all in one accord with one another so we do not lose faith or hope in any person. Thank you.